1: You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
2: This is Amanda Obeya, and you are listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast.
1: Have you ever been utterly determined? I should have never become a doctor. The odds were stacked against me, even from early childhood. I had a learning disability that profoundly affected my ability to read. It was actually kind of pitiful. While my peers were cracking open their first readers, I was picking out crayons for coloring books. My biggest task at that time was trying to keep between the lines. The public school system provided two separate tutors, and then my mom hired a third. I didn't know if I would ever get it. Like most things in my life, I never seemed to be able to do what everyone else could. Physical or mental, I was scrawny, bad at sports, and behind at school. But I wanted to become a doctor. From my earliest inklings, before I even knew what the profession was, I wanted to be just like my dad. Despite my learning disability, despite the five-plus years it took me to catch up, despite failure after failure that piled up at my door, despite the agonizing hours in high school and college it took me to study harder, longer, and more thoroughly than my peers, I eventually became that doctor. And nothing was ever going to stop me. Because there was never any doubt, never room in my mind not to succeed. I was determined, resolved, unwavering, hell-bent. Amanda Abea is full-time brand ambassador, an online business coach, and a millennial money expert. She is the author of the acclaimed Make Money Your Honey, A Spirited Entrepreneur's Guide to Having a Love Affair with Work and Money. She works with millennial service-based entrepreneurs who are hell-bent on creating online lifestyle businesses that allow them to make money and make an impact. Amanda, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me. That was such a good introduction. I didn't know that about you.
1: The story is mine, but the ideas were inspired by some of what I've read of your content and what I know of you. We had you on an episode of the What's Up Next podcast about... Building the top line. And I kind of laughed during that episode because frugality really is not a thing for you, is it?
2: No. (laughs) It was. Been there, done that, got the t shirt. (laughs) I mean, it's not that it's not a thing. Like, I just redid the entire home office since the last time we talked. And actually, I was quite frugal. The only thing I paid for was the painting, the furniture was reused. repurpose stuff that was in here. I think it's more like knowing when it's appropriate and when it's just getting in the way.
1: (laughs) Not frugality for frugality's sake, per se. Exactly. Yeah. I want to dial things back and talk about Amanda growing up. Tell me an outrageous story about your childhood.
2: An outrageous one? Well, the first one that came to mind, I don't know where this is going to go, is I accidentally gave a bully a black eye with a pool stick. In summer camp.
1: You have to explain that. What happened?
2: I was being bullied by this boy at the youth center. He was driving me crazy. It was nuts, right? And I was playing pool, like, in the rec room, and I guess... He was an idiot and got behind me just to like try and taunt me. And I did a a good shot, but the shot with a pool stick went in in his eye and gave him a black eye while I was shooting. So not only did I hit the ball right and it went in the pocket, I also gave him a black eye and then he left me alone for the rest of the summer.
1: (laughs) I was about to say, I bet people didn't really mess with you after that.
2: No, they didn't.
1: (laughs) Now you are the child of two Cuban immigrants. Is that right? Yes. That is and correct. How do you think that affected your upbringing
2: in the United States? Uh, multiple ways. So on the one hand, it's awesome because you're used to struggle. You're used to having to work really hard. You're used to things not just being handed to you. There is no sense of entitlement. At the same time, you also have this understanding of what people in other countries go through. I often say that if I don't figure out how to make money off the internet, which is so readily available in the United States, that's on me because my relatives in Cuba don't have access to the internet like I do. They can't just up and start a business. We can here. So if I don't figure that out, that's my fault. At the same time, I remember my mom always saying, look, this is the best country in the world. You can be whatever you want to be, but you don't even get healthcare for free, so get ready to work. (laughs) So it was very like realistic, I guess, is one way of saying it.
1: This idea of having to work hard was ingrained in you as a kid.
2: I think it was the determination that was ingrained in me as a kid. It's not necessarily going to be easy, but no one ever said it would.
1: Would it be right to describe you as a pretty willful child?
2: Yes, I was definitely a very willful child. (laughs) That is correct.
1: (laughs) That's you as a child. As you got into high school and college, did you have career aspirations?
2: The only thing I would thought of was I always want to write. So it's really weird. My birthday's actually tomorrow. You know, I'm in that reflective time. I'm like, this is so weird because some of the things that I see myself doing now, I had some sort of an inkling about it as a teenager or in college. I, I was never like, I'm going to be a blogger, an influencer, or a coach. None of that. I mean, that was not in my sphere of thought at all. Definitely not in finance. That was the furthest thing from my mind. But I knew I would be doing something. Like I always had some sort of gut feeling and my team makes fun of me for my gut feelings because they're like, there's Amanda's gut again, but they always know I'm right. So (laughs) I had some gut feeling. I had some sort of inclination. There's something, there's something, there's something. I didn't know exactly what it was. I knew it had to do with writing and communication, but that was about it. The rest of it has just been discovering it as I go.
1: In some ways, it sounds like you or me, when I was going through my learning disability, I knew I was going to be a doctor. I didn't know how, but somehow I knew I was going to succeed. You grew up with a little bit of that certainty too. Like, I might not know how I'm going to get there, but I'm going to make it happen.
2: But there's something, yeah, and I'm going to make it happen. And there's something I'm figuring out. There's something that's going to go down, but I I didn't really know what that was.
1: Was there any question that you'd be able to figure it out?
2: Yeah, of course. I mean, I'm human. I have doubts along the way. That's normal, I would think. Right? But I think deep down in my core, no.
1: You finish college and go to get a job and what happens?
2: <laughs> it was 2010 and I couldn't find a job. <laughs> I was an English literature major. I went to a small liberal arts school, which funny how things come back around because now a lot of people that I went to college with are becoming clients of mine in this mm-hmm. climate. <laughs> but I was an English literature major, went to a liberal arts school. It was basically based on traditional liberal arts, like philosophy, literature. I took Latin for a year, almost failed that twice, right? (laughs) It was awful. (laughs) so awful. I think they have since gotten rid of that as a part of the core curriculum, last I heard, but I had to take it. So it was very traditional old school liberal arts. And it just kind of taught me how to think and reason and look at things from different perspectives, which I think was a wonderful skill set. I think I saw in your Facebook group about a liberal arts education. And then there was like a cool discussion. And I'm like, look, while I was in college, there was no way I could equate what I was doing to money in the bank. 10 years later now, I can see exactly how those skills have helped me in the last 10 years.
1: Yeah, the liberal arts education has gotten a bad name maybe over the last few decades, but I'm finding more and more entrepreneurs especially are, are fairly thankful that they had that broad range of education. It certainly sounds like it served you.
2: Oh, totally. I mean, I teach my assistant marketing right now and I'm like, oh, this is like literature, but different because it's just a different context. But the idea of patterns, emotion, like it's all the same. It's just applied in a different way.
1: So let's go back to that time. You're looking for a job. It's 2010. No job is available. How did you come to the idea of starting your own business?
2: Mm. So that was two things. Number one, my mother, Cuban immigrant, had always said, you can do whatever you want, figure it out. I think at the time... She was at a job while I was growing up that she did not really enjoy. And she was like, go figure out your own thing because if you ever want to have a family, if you want to have flexibility, you're going to have to do your own thing. Again, it was just that reality thing. Like My parents never really sugarcoated anything (laughs) when it came to money. So they were real straightforward about that. They're like, yeah, no, if you want to have a family and kids, you better figure out how to do your own thing. So that was instilled in me. Also that drive of you live in the United States, you can be whatever you want to be here, right? It's not going to be easy. Doesn't mean there aren't going to be challenges, but you can still be whatever you want to be. Just don't expect it to be easy. I'd have been ingrained with that. And then the third thing was what option did I have? I was at home and I couldn't find a job. A friend of mine had noticed that I was struggling and he handed me Chris Guillebeau's book, The Art of Nonconformity, which I see that he had a book come out now called The Money Tree. And I'm like, what is it with Chris Gillibo that every time there's a recession, he just has like the perfect book? Because <laughs> <laughs> I saw the ad for that the other day, but 10 years ago, it was The Art of Nonconformity. And it was about that idea of you don't have to go to school and get a job. And for me, obviously, that wasn't working. So it was like, do your own thing, go online, travel the world. And I was like, okay all right, all right, You know, little seed planted. And then I Googled how to make money writing. And that's how it started.
1: Tell me how you balanced this drive to make it work, which it sounds like your parents instilled in you versus the whole imposter syndrome situation where you're like, I've never done this before. I'm putting myself forth as a freelancer or an expert. And yet I'm just this woman coming out of college.
2: I think a part of it was survival. I didn't have a choice. Right. I was questioning a lot of things at the time, you know, that liberal arts education. Okay, well, going to school and getting a job didn't work out or the economy's down the drain or all these variables that were out of my control. What is in my control? So that introspective thing I got from the liberal arts education, I think that was a part of it. It was just survival. And then as time has gone on, when the imposter syndrome shows up, because it still shows up, I would say one of the things that helps me and also helps my clients when I'm coaching them is just to come from a place of service. For example, I could think of a million reasons to call myself an imposter as humans normally do. But at the end of the day, it's not really about me. It's just about me trying to help people. So if I focus on helping and get the attention off of myself and how people perceive me or whatever, then that fear tends to kind of go away.
1: I want to push you a little bit further on this survival issue because there were plenty of people between 2008-2010 who were in similar situations as yours, and many of them didn't go out and start new businesses. Many of them went and worked at a local Starbucks or maybe took a job beneath their educational level at the time. I hear what you're saying is you didn't have a choice, but not everyone makes those same decisions.
2: Yeah, I hear that a lot. They're like, how did a 22-year-old come to this conclusion? And I don't even have a good answer for it, to be honest, (laughs) other than I was just paying attention. That's all I say to people. I I was just paying attention. It's one of those things where I've noticed again in retrospect, and I think it might be the liberal arts education. I'm not sure, but I have this uncanny ability to just observe what's going on around me and then make decisions. Instead of reacting, I kind of more naturally observe and then respond.
1: So that's interesting. So when things get difficult or you're starting to really worry, you actually get more observant instead of less, which I would say is probably different than the
2: majority of people. Yeah. So I think back then it was kind of an accident. Now, you know, I've been a meditator for like eight or nine years. So now I understand how to get to that place. But back when I was 22, I mean, that was not a thing. It was just kind of more of an accident or a fluke. Now, 10 years later, I'm like, okay, well, I meditate. I've studied these things. I've practiced these things. So now I can tell you, here's how I did it. (laughs) But at 22, I have no answer. I don't know. Other than looking at things from different perspectives and asking really good questions, which the only thing I can trace that back to was the liberal arts education.
1: Were there a lot of failures early on or did you find immediate success?
2: Oh God, lots of failures. In fact, some of those failures are coming back around now in different forms as different projects. (laughs) I brought one of those failures back from the dead over the weekend and it's already making me money.
1: (laughs) Explain that. I want to know more.
2: So one of my failures was I tried to start a membership site. I think this was like in 2014 or something, maybe a year or two after quitting my job because I did get a job at some point, but I kept all the money on the side going because again, that survival thing. But I tried to start a membership site and I wasn't as savvy as a marketer or I wasn't as savvy as a business person. I also had a history of under earning that I hadn't quite figured out yet at that point. So it was $49 a month and it was all these monthly trainings. And then I was doing live stuff and had a smaller list back then. So the numbers just didn't make sense. It's just, I was not savvy enough back then to know that. So it was technically a failure. Now, since everything has broken out in this crisis, not just health-wise, but also financially, a lot of people are in crisis right now. Things are a little bit different now. You know, there's an email list of 10,000 people, or people are in my DMs constantly asking about questions, or I'm being put in front of audiences to talk about reinventing yourself during a recession. And I was like, oh my gosh, what can I do to help these people who are basically where I was 10 years ago? What can I do? And I brought back the academy over the weekend. (laughs) because I had all the systems built out. So it only took me a couple of hours to bring it back and like, boom, started making sales in 24 hours.
1: I want to bring back something you just said. You said, I have a history of under earning. And that really stood out based on what I know about you now. In fact, we had that top line discussion. And when I see what you put out over the internet, you're doing the exact opposite. now. Well,
2: why do you think I'm so like staunchly about the top line? It's because I wasn't about it for so long. It was so uncomfortable.
1: Tell me more about that. Why was it uncomfortable and what were you doing wrong?
2: Oh, lots of reasons. I mean, I think there's conditioning as a woman, there's conditioning as an immigrant, there's conditioning as a minority, there's all kinds of things. And and that's just individually. Also on a collective level, there's all kinds of conditioning. Even now I'm seeing so-called business experts telling people to not sell right now because it's not appropriate. And I'm like, and how do you expect to bring the economy back if people aren't selling? So I had all that stuff going on. It's just, I hadn't discovered it yet. It was just stories I had taken on.
1: That brings up the question of mindset versus skill set, especially in those early on days. Was it building the skill set that was difficult or was it building the correct mindset?
2: I would say it was the mindset because this is how clueless I was. And I'm ensuring not to make the same mistake now that I have a team and employees. I was always in sales to some degree at every job I ever had. It's just no one connected the dots for me. My last job before going into this full-time, I worked as a recruiter. I worked for a small business. It was an agency. We would match people with jobs with our clients, which were Fortune 500 companies. It's a sales job. You're just selling people on jobs instead of selling them on a product, and you're selling employers on candidates, right? But no one actually sat down with me and said, hey, what you're doing with interviewing these people and bringing them back is sales. This has to do with our bottom line. No one ever connected those dots. They just kind of threw me in because they're like, you're good at this, go.
1: Do you think as a community, we're afraid to stress the importance of sales? In our country, sometimes people look down at sales, right? You think of the used car salesman, for instance. Mm. That is not a vaunted place in society. Yet when I speak to online entrepreneurs like you, they talk about the importance of sales first. Are we doing people wrong by not teaching them this?
2: Well, sales is the only thing that makes money move.
1: That easy. That's straightforward. Yeah. Was sales something that came naturally to you in the beginning?
2: I think the personality for it and liking people did come naturally. Then there were certain skill sets I had to learn because again, there was no mentoring going on. They just kind of like threw me into it. There was no dot connections that occurred, which I'm aware of that now. And now with my team, I'm like, okay, look, here's how what you're doing relates to the bank account so that they're very clear (laughs) as I'm training them because I didn't know. I think if I had known, I would have been like, okay, can you teach me how to do this better? Or maybe I would have tried harder or I would have tried to seek out the skill set earlier, but because I didn't even know I was doing sales, those things never occurred to me.
1: Is sales something you're just born with or is it something that anyone can pick up?
2: Mm, There's a lot of debate about that. I think some people have a natural propensity toward it because they're people people. But in terms of the skill set, it can be learned. It's like creativity. People complain that they're not creative, but if you use it and you practice it, you become creative like it doesn't actually run out sales is kind of the same thing i would say that some have more of a natural inclination toward it personality wise because they like people but in terms of a skill set anybody can learn it i would say the hardest part is and i say this to all my clients is releasing all the garbage you have in your head as to why you don't deserve money why you can't do sales why someone doesn't want to pay you why your stuff isn't valuable The confidence stuff, that's the hard part, not the actual skill set of sales.
1: I want to get into that a little bit. Talk to me about people's money scripts. I know you must come across this a lot when you're coaching people. What kind of money scripts do people have and how does it hold them back?
2: Oh my God, all kinds. I would say one of the biggest ones is not thinking big enough. I think that's one of the ones I've had an issue with because we just don't have the imagination because we've never actually seen it in our own lives. It's difficult for us to imagine. So I was talking to one of my clients last week. She's actually in Beijing. So she was telling me a lot (laughs) about what's going on over there right now. She's like, well, you know, since this whole thing blew up and we were all quarantined, she's an English teacher over there. She's like, I have so many people reaching out to me to teach their kids English because they don't want their kids to lose the English while we're all quarantined. And I said, there's your business right there. And she's like, oh, but it's like a little bit of side money. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. This is a business. She goes, what? So I think that's a part of it. We're just not trained to think in that way. We're trained to be okay with just enough. We're trained to just be complacent. On the more negative side of the spectrum, we're trying to blame other people for our financial problems or expect the government or someone to fix it for us. I'm real happy about the stimulus package. People need it, but some of y'all got bigger problems than what can be fixed with one check from the government. I've seen a lot of this going on in the last two or three weeks. It's that reactivity instead of the responding to the situation. I've seen two kinds of people. I've seen the kinds of people who are reacting, spending the whole time blaming policies, the president, this, that, whatever, not that criticism is not merited, but all their time is being spent there. And then I see other people who are like, that's out of my control. There's nothing I can do about that. I'm just going to focus on what I can control and serving my people and showing up the way I know how to show up. And it's the second group of people that usually ends up prosperous on the other side of these things.
1: When you point out these negative money scripts, do people respond? How hard is it to change that narrative in their brain?
2: It depends on the person. My clients are pretty open to it, but there are some that are really in there that require a lot of work. Sometimes they can't see it for themselves. Like I had a client emailing over the weekend who was upset about a bad business deal that she did while all this stuff broke out. And she's like, the guys disappeared on me and this and that. And my clients are dropping like flies because they're all restaurants and this and whatever. And she was just so in it. And I'm like, you need to snap out of this and start moving in a different direction because what you're doing right now is not helpful. <laughs> I don't want you to bring this guy who took your money ever again. Like, just move on. And sometimes they respond well, sometimes they don't. <laughs> but it's the truth. There's nothing you could do about that. It's like I was telling my clients the other day, and you being a doctor, I'm sure you're going to relate to this. The only thing that we really have to explain what's going on right now is war the kind of mentality that you need. This is the only point of reference that we have for what we're experiencing as a collective right now is that mentality of this is war.
1: And I've noticed you've used the word war. You've used the word survival. I took the word hellbent out even from your own copy. The way you frame this story of entrepreneurship is really a little bit of aggressive one, isn't it?
2: It's a hero's journey. That's all it is. We're all on it. (laughs)
1: And I imagine that that is one of the ways you conquer some of those limiting beliefs because I imagine when people come to you for coaching They have all sorts of reasons why they think they can't succeed
2: Oh, yeah past failures and I think that's another one is people don't know how to look at failure They're like, oh I had this one mistake or I had this one failure. Therefore. I am a failure They kind of personify it. Or if this hasn't worked before, why would it work now? One of my recent clients, she was a yoga teacher. She was doing all this in-person stuff. Obviously, that's not happening right now because of what's going on. And I said, you need to get in this program and you need to get online now. The only reason she was hesitant was because she was like, oh, I've tried before and it hasn't worked. I don't care. The time is now. So she gets in and within a week, she's starting to make double what she was making in person. Wow. Sometimes it's that fear of this hasn't worked out before. Why would it work out now? I find that that one comes up a lot But it's because we have a tendency of personifying failure
1: Tell me a little bit about where you came across this hero's journey philosophy Did that happen to you in college or or when did you interact with it?
2: Uh, yeah, because I remember the first thing I had to read in western literature was the Iliad and the odyssey Which are literally the hero's journey (laughs) So yes, college, but then also outside of that, when you go into business development, which turns into a lot of personal development, you run into the Carl Young's and all that kind of stuff. So then it just comes up again. And I'm like, wait a minute, I learned this in college, literally in Western Civ and Western Literature.
1: And moving farther even back, it sounds like maybe not in those terms, but isn't that what your parents were also teaching you when they were telling you that you don't have much of a choice? This is what you got to do with your life, and this is how you're going to succeed. It sounds like they were giving you some of that power as a child to take responsibility and to make things happen. Yeah, it
2: was a lot of taking responsibility. It's so funny because I have a lot of friends Cuban and non-Cuban alike, their families have experienced communism to some degree, and we all think the same way. We were all taught the same things. It doesn't matter which country it was where you experienced it. There's this underlying, this is what we were taught, this is the way that it is. Almost like this rugged individualism, because there is no individualism in communist countries, and then you see how that destroys a whole nation.
1: That's fascinating. It's like the hero's journey is the anti-communism. I I never put it in those terms in my brain. But when you talk about your upbringing, that's exactly what it sounds like.
2: Yeah, I never thought about it that way either. Now that I think about it, I've never seen it in that way. Now, obviously, rugged individualism can also lead to problems if it's not checked. (laughs) (laughs) We need to balance these things out. (laughs) But it is that sense of this is your responsibility you can't even rely on the government that's basically what i was taught what for my mother still remembers the day when the cuban government came and took all the land that was her family's it was just all taken away from one day to the next this isn't yours anymore it belongs to the government you can't rely on the government to take care of you and when i was a recruiter that's what i saw you can't rely on a corporation to take care of you i interviewed people who lost their jobs all the time
1: When you say that, I also think about the difficulties, especially for women entrepreneurs. It seems to me they face a different set of hurdles. How different for you has it been being a woman in this entrepreneurial voyage compared to someone else?
2: See, here's the interesting thing, because I get asked this question, and I don't think I have, or at least I'm not consciously aware of it. Like, I hear these stories about women not being able to get in the door, and I'm the type of person who's like, I will knock down the damn door if I have to. I don't care if I'm a man or a woman, I'm knocking down this damn door. Like, I just don't even think about that, if that makes sense.
1: It does, but I believe you also mentioned that there are some masculine and feminine money scripts.
2: That is true. And that has more to do with social conditioning. So with women, for example, one of the things I see is you're kind of told to put everybody else before you at the expense of you. That ain't gonna help you in anything, but especially not in business. (laughs) It's not gonna help you, period, but it's definitely not gonna help your bank account. Men are kind of the opposite. Men are taught that their only value is in how much money they make. So that creates a different set of issues. That's all social conditioning. That's all stuff, stories that have been placed upon us.
1: I've heard you describe your coaching process as the persuade to profit coaching process. Tell me a little bit about that. What is that?
2: Persuade to Profit is my business training program. And what we'll do is we'll help coaches and thought leaders and teachers and small business owners excel at marketing and sales. Normally, when they come to me, they haven't really figured out the structure. Like They don't even exactly know what they're selling. Maybe they've been doing one-on-one stuff for a while, or maybe they've been sitting on this idea, but they haven't realized that idea could be a full blown business. So what the first thing that we do is market research, because I'm like, you need to know your audience better than they know themselves. Themselves. And the way that I've created that is based on my literature <laughs> background. What are the patterns? What are we looking for? What are the emotions? I tell my clients, I don't just want the surface level data. I want you going five layers deep because that's when you create something that actually solves people's problems. And when you create something that solves people's problems, you know how to market and sell it. It basically sells itself. So then once we figure out the offering, we go into pricing. That's usually when people's money mindset stuff comes up, is when we get to pricing. <laughs> And then we go into the actual marketing of the message and getting it out there and promotion And then we go into sales. So that is the process that we go through It used to be a six-week long program. Now we've actually extended it out to about a year It's a lot of habits, you know, like with my annual clients right now Especially since this whole thing broke out this whole month was supposed to be about sales and sales tasks But obviously, we're in a crisis situation, and it's war. So a lot of it has been about, okay, here's the mindset that you need right now. Money has not actually stopped moving. It just changed direction. This is not a normal recession.
1: In digital business, we often talk about our avatar, right? That's our ideal client, the person we're speaking to when we put out content. Tell me who your avatar is for your coaching business.
2: Mm. So in the last two or three weeks, I think is when I've gotten even more clear about this because I have seen how my clients are showing up for their audiences. Some of it on their own accord, some of it based on my lead and what they've seen me do. But the way that I have seen them show up brings me to like near tears, basically. I am working with leaders. I am working with people who actually want to change this planet. I am working with people who, in crisis situations, they step up and start helping people. And that is something that, in the last two or three weeks since this all broke out, became more clear than ever.
1: All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is... After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. You know what? I saw in your copy, you said, I work with millennial service-based entrepreneurs who are hell-bent on creating online lifestyle businesses that allow them to make money and make impact. Sounds like you and your avatar look very similar.
2: Yeah. (laughs) And that's usually the case. (laughs) When you're in a leadership position, people are going to follow your lead. So one of the reasons I've been stepping up so hard in the last three weeks, and I don't even think about it as a, oh, let me make all this money. I know it's going to translate to money, but that's not at the forefront. What's at the forefront is this is what is required of me right now because of the state of the world. This is why I got into this. This is just what needs to get done. I don't think beyond that. I'm just like, get me in front of the people. I need to help the people book me solid.
1: Is there a limit? What are your long-term goals and do they have a finite end?
2: No. (laughs) I think we talked about this last time, didn't we? I mean, yes, I save for retirement, I want to be financially independent, but it's not so I can just one day stop working. I mean, I'd like the option, obviously, but I've noticed that people who really love what they do kind of look at financial independence a little bit differently than most of the population does. So I'm turning 32 tomorrow. Right now, the answer is no. This could change in 20, 30, 40 years. <laughs> you know, so I mean, I don't know. But from what I see, even my whole team will tell you, they're like, you haven't stopped this whole time. You haven't taken a break. And they'll tell you, it's because you actually really love this. This is what you were put on this planet to do. I get normal tired, but I don't get burned out tired. And there's a difference.
1: If you had to start all over again tomorrow, if everything crashed, what would you do?
2: I'd get help a lot sooner. I avoided it for a long time. I avoided it for years. I think I just kind of ignored certain things finance? What? People are asking me for money stuff? No, that's not possible because I've been bad at math since I was eight. There's no way, right? Or what? Invest for someone to help me put this together? That's crazy. I could just go figure it out on my own. That's all hubris. It's hubris. That's what it is. I would have taken myself more seriously sooner and I would have gotten help sooner. I think those are the two things, but I I had to deal with my own hubris.
1: And do you see any future possible looking forward in which you don't utterly succeed?
2: No. My team and I, we have a joke. I'm leading a Think and Grow Rich book club right now. That's one of the ways I've been showing up for people since we're going to be quarantined for another 30 days. They're like, next book, Science of Getting Rich. I'm like, all right, you guys picked it. We're going to do it. <laughs> but one of the things it says is, is basically burn the boats. That's what it talks about in Think and Grow Rich is just having that determination and that desire the thing that most people do is they're like, well, just in case this fails, I have a plan B, C, D, E, and F. And they won't let go of the B, C, D, E, and F so then they're not very focused and then nothing really pans out. That doesn't mean don't have contingency plans because we live in an imperfect world, but they're kind of making plans assuming they're going to fail is the point that they're trying to make. My assistant came up with the joke. It's plan A for Amanda because there is no plan B. It's winter parish.
1: That's interesting philosophy. And yet it makes complete sense. I never thought about having that diversity of possibilities can dilute your attention to what your main possibility of succeeding is.
2: Oh, Um, yeah. And this is something immigrants struggle with, particularly, because we're so used to cash, cash, cash. We'll take whatever cash we can get that we don't want to let go of things, even if it's little baby cash, to focus and take the risk on the thing that will take care of us and future generations for the rest of our lives.
1: Tell me, as you saw this economic downturn coming, did you feel hope or fear?
2: Well... I'm going to have to start doing trainings on this. I'm not sure how. My whole team is in shock because they're like, you've been preparing for this for three years. I started pivoting my company three years ago in the event of a market correction because they're cyclical. They come. Every investor knows this. Did I think it was going to be the situation where now? No, no one could have called that but I knew something was coming. 18 months ago, I started building out team and systems. The last time we talked, I was literally still in the thick of it. And we finished a month ago. I mean, it's to the point where a month ago, I was having a conversation with my CFO. We built out this whole membership site, which has allowed us to be very nimble and create these things very quickly for people because the whole thing is automated and systematized. The final phase of it was a client portal. And a month ago, I had told my CFO, well, you know, we're not in a hurry. It's all good. It's fine. It'll be done by the end of the month. The next day, I woke up and I had this gut feeling that was basically like rip the Band-Aid off and get it done in two days. So I did. That's the thing that my team jokes about, that gut feeling of yours. Because if you hadn't followed that and all these systems weren't done, with the amount of attention that is on you right now because people are seeking it, we would be panicking. There's no way we could handle this.
1: So for all of us listening right now, convince us that it's quite possible to still make money and do well in a digital economy while our brick and mortar economy seems to be tanking.
2: Well, all the money's moving online. All these brick and mortar businesses need help getting online. This is what I learned in the last recession by accident. But now I understand it. If you find a problem to fix, you're going to be fine. That's how you're going to be prosperous. We got a whole lot of problems that need fixing right now. And the money hasn't actually stopped moving. It just went in a different direction. This is not a normal recession. This is us slowing down on purpose. The idea is we squash this virus and then the confidence comes back. Whether or not that's going to happen is out of our control. But what we can control is this notion of there's a lot of people out there right now who need help and they are seeking this information. We have not stopped onboarding new clients since this whole thing broke out. If anything, our sales have gone up. Our clients who had started shifting online right before this thing happened, they're busier than ever because people are looking for them. I have a client who does relationship coaching for single women. She left her job right before all this stuff blew up. She didn't know this was coming. She was just following her gut. She goes, I'm going to take the risk and I'm going to go for it. She's already closed three new clients throughout this whole mess. Another one of our clients is a marriage counselor and he's like, I'm on track to have my best quarter ever. Even though we had to move everything online, it hasn't changed anything if anything, we're seeing more. I think the ones who are struggling are the ones that they've worked with a lot of in-person events or they've worked with a lot of corporations. I started saying this three years ago. Those of you who rely on corporations, because I do a lot of brand work as well, and I do speaking events, that's a, a part of what we do. And part of the reason we built out all these systems was so I could go be present and do more of those things. But there was another part of it, which was one good market correction and all that money's gone, at least for a while. And I knew that. And that's why I started shifting. All these things that are going on would have happened during a normal market correction, all the contraction we're seeing in corporations. The only difference is that this virus has expediated the whole process, but they would have happened during a normal market correction anyway. So I had planned for that. And a lot of my students and clients had already started planning for that as well.
1: And for those people who don't necessarily believe or want examples, I've seen you put out a number of videos with clients talking about how much new business they've closed on in the more recent times. This is something that's happening, that people are changing their way of looking at their businesses and they're ramping up much faster than they thought possible.
2: I wish it was under better circumstances. I think everybody always does. But whenever there's times of crisis or economic downturns, that's what breeds innovation. For some reason, us humans, A, we need to learn things the hard way and B, it's not until our back is up against the wall and we're uncomfortable that we really start to thrive and innovate. Why that is, I don't know. That is something for the philosophers to figure out.
1: (laughs) How do you think your business will look different coming out of this economic crisis when we
2: inevitably do? Oh, well, I have declared we're going to be more prosperous. So there's that. And I've told all my clients, people are going to remember how you showed up right now. They're not going to forget that. I'm not doing it for the money. I know it's going to translate to money. We've come up with new offerings, new ideas, different business model situations, all of which were already in the works, but now it really forced us to get it done fast And I think that's where a lot of business owners are. It's like all these ideas and things you've been sitting on, but you didn't have time to do or you you didn't have that push. Guess what? It's here. Take advantage of it. Don't crumble. Pivot.
1: Amanda Bay, it's been a pleasure talking to you, especially for the optimism, which is clearly part of what you bring to the table, not only skills and knowledge and mindset, but a belief that you can help people make things better. And right now, that's exactly what I think we need to hear. I'd like to close the way I always close my episodes by asking you what is up next in your life and where can we find you on the internet?
2: Yes. So what is up next? We just relaunched the Make Money Your Honey Academy, that failed project for many years ago that has been resurrected in the time of crisis (laughs) because now is when people need it. You get one training and one meditation per month. This month's training- at the time of we're recording this is how to start a freelance business. So those of you who need to make extra money right now, that is for you. For those of you who are more seasoned entrepreneurs, maybe you're coaches, you've been working one-on-one for a while. You need to learn how to scale. You need to get better at sales. Then persuade to profit is for you because that's where we really go deep into marketing and sales and business systems and business structures. And other than that, apparently I'm leading free book clubs for the foreseeable future. <laughs> so come join me <laughs> just go find me on Facebook
1: alright well this has been the earn and invest podcast on behalf of myself Doc G I'd like to thank Amanda Abea. you could describe her as relentless or maybe even hellbent, but I would say that she is kind and prescient and ready for the changes that are coming to our world that's a wrap Are you ever scrolling through your Facebook feed and wonder, boy, I wish I could listen to another episode of the Earn and Invest podcast? Well, now you can engage in our content in two different ways. One, you can go to our website, www.earnandinvest.com. That's E-A-R-N-A-N-D-I-N-V-E-S-T.com. Or you can check us out on Facebook at the Earn and Invest Facebook group. The easiest way to get there is www.diversify.com/backslash Facebook. That's D I V E R S E F I.com/backslash Facebook. We hope to see you there and engage with our community on topics very similar to the ones you'll find on the podcast. Now back to the show. We're back with Dave from Accidental Fire. Accidentalfire.com is one of my favorite blogs. Dave and I have known each other for years, and often there's a lot of back channel discussion we have about what's going on in our lives as well as in personal finance. Dave did something that him and I have talked about for years but had never happened up to this point. He had a post go viral. It was actually a graph called The Relative Importance in 2020 so far. It's a hilarious look at what we're going through right now. We are going to get to that. But before we do, Dave,
0: welcome to the show. Doc, thanks for having me back on, man. I really appreciate it and great to see you.
1: It's great to see you too. We have met each other many times at different meetings and gatherings as well as communicated in other ways. Let's talk a little bit about accidentalfire.com. I see it as a cross section of personal finance, fitness, and maybe even extreme travel. Tell us about the blog.
0: Yeah, those and a little more. I'm probably all over the place, but that's my blog, you know, my rules. Yeah, it was mainly started as a personal finance blog. But when I did that, I thought, well, there's a lot of those and I have a specific story. So I'm going to add my stories in. That brings in the adventure travel and mountain climbing and all that kind of stuff. But I also want to be funny because I'm kind of a goofball and finance is boring. So I thought, well, let's add a satire angle to it. Additionally, after that, then what I do for a living is actually digital mapping. That was my career and background. I do a lot of these geographic and mapping type of posts too. So kind of have like four different angles going there, which is against all recommendations for people that say, you know, when you want your blog to go big, you got to niche in and all this stuff. And I'm kind of not really niching in, but the four things tie together. It's kind of the way I try to do it is to make them tie in together. I've related climbing to finance in many, many ways. And of course, you can make finance funny. You just have to poke at it. That's basically my blog. And on the finance, I'd like to emphasize, I don't do the raw finance stuff. You can't compete with the Wade Fowles of the world and the Michael Kitches of the world. They do that stuff so well. I do some of the finance, but I tend to focus on the behavioral aspects of what's actually driving your money decisions in your life. Because to me, that's the actual fascinating part.
1: And there are two things that I find on your blog that I don't find it nearly as well done anywhere else. The first is the graphing, which you talked about That is part of your work background. But over the years, you have created some just amazing graphs that have really given us insight into behaviorally why people do what they do. And then the second part is the comedy, the turnip fire. Tell me about how this idea of doing turnip fire came about.
0: That was basically realizing a dream I've had for a long time. Anyone who's not familiar with my blog, and I'm sure it's a lot of people here, I have a segment called Turnip Fire, which is a takeoff on The Onion. And if you're not familiar with what The Onion is, it's a pretty famous satirical website. The Onion was basically fake news before fake news came to our lexicon. So The Onion's actually been around since the early 90s, believe it or not. And it was back in the day produced in a paper format. And The Onion's hilarious. Some people get The Onion humor most people do. Some people don't. It's very satirical, very sarcastic. Back in the 90s, The Onion, it was very small back then, they actually took reader submissions. And me and a lot of my friends would dream up Onion articles. I sent one in a couple times actually, and I never got accepted. So it was always my dream to get published in The Onion. And I kind of gave it up over the years. So after I started a blog, I figured, hmm, how do I make finance funnier? I could just do a rip off of The Onion. And I called it the turnip instead of The Onion, right? And uh, they haven't sued me yet, which is good. Mm-hmm. So I started doing these little short snippets. If you're familiar with The Onion, most of them are very short. They're very satirical. Like I said, a lot of sarcasm. They're mostly picked on parts of society and segments of society because uh, everyone needs to be picked on and everyone can be poked you know, fun at, including me. So um, that's how Turn Fire came about. But I keep them all related to money and blogging in some way.
1: And interestingly enough, you and I, especially at the beginning when I was focusing more on blogging than podcasting, have talked a lot about what makes a post popular and what gets you a lot of hits on a blog post in the past, it seems like Turnip Fire, probably one of the most fun types of posts for you to do, does not necessarily always get the highest traffic, except this post, the relative importance in 2020 so far. Did it surprise you that this was one of the ones that went viral when that traditionally has not been the post of yours that gets the most hits?
0: Yeah. Well, two things on that. This isn't really a turnip fire post. I have two kinds of satirical posts and turnip fire is one of them and they're done like the onion. And the infographics as I actually call them, these I added about a year into my blog. And these are inspired by a guy named Brendan Leonard, who runs a blog called Semirad. And if you're a climber or a mountaineer, you're probably very familiar with him. He's very famous in our particular community. He's not so famous outside of it. He's basically done posts like this for a long time. So I was inspired by his idea, which is just the childish kind of doodle. And of course, I'm not stealing his content. I just was inspired by the framework of it and I'm putting my own content in there. Yes, I was extremely surprised because my turn of fire articles and my infographics tend to not do as well as my regular articles. That's okay. I want to be funny and I want to try to be funny. So I'm going to keep on doing them this blew me away. I mean, honestly, I, I've i never imagined something could go so crazy. And it kind of, the back end of it, if you could see the Google Analytics and how it happened, it, it really kind of opened my eyes as to, there's a reason it's called going viral. And in this time right now that we're all going through, it's apropos, it does spread like a virus when something like this happens. And it's amazing to see how it kind of happened. And it's, still happening. My 15 minutes isn't over. I think I'm getting up to 18 and a half minutes now. <laughs> Maybe I'll go up to 20 or 30. So it's still, I'm looking at my Google Analytics right now and I've still got tons of people on my blog and it hasn't stopped yet. It's definitely slowed down a little bit, but uh, blew my mind. Absolutely blew my mind. So for people who haven't seen the infographic, describe it for us. What does it show? It's just a real simple line graph with an X and Y axis. On the Y axis is importance, meaning less important at the bottom and more important at the top. And on the X axis, I put January, February, March, and April. And I just thought, okay, everyone in the world is going through this similar thing or pretty much everyone in the world. And how can I show very simplistically and very elegantly how our lives have kind of changed abruptly without overdoing it? And I was on a bike ride and I think of all my ideas almost when I'm either running or riding because you get the dopamine and you get the endorphins moving and and you start to think clear. The science is pretty clear on that, right? So I had to pull over and I grabbed my phone. And I thought of the idea literally and I dictated it into my phone. That's what I always do. And I went for the rest of my ride. And when I came home, I was like, oh yeah, I have to, I have to actually mock that up. And that was it. I mean, it took me about an hour. I literally thought of the idea. It took me about five minutes of thinking of the idea because it just kind of popped in my head. And I tried to just boil it down to how has life changed for most people, but not in a boring way by saying, oh, you can't go out and you can't do this. Just put a couple things on there and say, some are more important now and some are less important now. And then of course, coffee's at the top because coffee's always very important. And that was kind of the last little laugh that a lot of people really enjoyed that part, so. Yeah, the two really fun parts of the graph
1: are one, coffee remains important from January to April and it's of the of highest course. importance. And of, of course. course, what was of least importance in January, which was sweatpants, all of a sudden jumps to the fore is something that's major in our life right now. Jeez. I think as far as comedy goes, that very succinctly, describes what's going on in our life. I'll describe a few of the other graphs just for other people. So your car was of great importance in January, maybe not as high as coffee, but great importance. And that has fallen to the wayside. The internet was of moderate to high importance and is now even more important. And of course, shaving and I would add in there showering was moderately important, (laughs) but now has fallen into the least important of all or pretty close to your car there. So yeah, It's really a funny take of what's going on. I understand why it went viral. Looking at this, it makes me laugh, and yet it's profoundly true at the same time. You and I have talked a long time for what do we do in our posts that actually catch on. Why do you think that this caught, you know, quote
0: unquote fire? Well, one, and this wasn't intentional, everyone in the world almost right now can relate to it. So, I wasn't thinking of a global audience. I mean, I'm a mid sized blog in in the financial space, a small blog in the overall space. I wasn't thinking, like, you know, in a global perspective, of course, but it just happened to be that. It's something that largely the world is experiencing right now. That's one. Two, I kept it simple and I kept it very elegant, you know, not elegant in the design because it's meant to look like kind of a child drawing it up, but just don't put too many things on there because. All the different versions that have come out afterwards, people are adding toilet paper and drugs and alcohol and tons of them. They're hilarious. But I didn't want to add a whole lot because then it starts to take away from it. You're starting to think too much. It's just put these four or five things up there. And that's where I think it is. It's the simplicity, the elegance, but it says something that makes you laugh. And it says something that's also very true. And it's non offending. Um, and I think there's a good way to do humor in this environment and a bad way to do humor in this environment because ultimately, we're going through a pandemic, and there's people dying, right? So I was cognizant of that. And I was like, okay, how can I be funny, but not be funny in a way that's going to offend anybody, or, you know, talk about something directly related to the virus or people being sick. And obviously, that's not appropriate. And It kind of met all those particular things. You mentioned that
1: people had added to your graph, put in other things like alcohol, and just in my browsing, even sometimes unrelated, I've seen either the same graph but done completely differently but the same information, or I've seen similar graphs with new data points how do you feel about that i've never seen you credited or rarely seen you credited for those images that are being put up on other people's websites and facebook feeds how does it feel
0: <laughs> well sometimes it sucks but i'll have to say i'm a little trained for this already so i do graphic arts as a side hustle and it's if you if you're familiar with my blog I'm, i know you are doc but others I have a pretty big side hustle now that brings me in decent income and doing graphic arts and selling them online. And they get stolen all the time too. And it's very frustrating. So particularly Chinese companies will steal your design, my cycling designs and things like that, and put them up on Amazon. So I've been trained for this a little bit. I'm used to seeing my stuff basically stolen outright and then sold by others. It still doesn't mean it's not frustrating, but I wasn't as frustrated as probably other people would B, I admit the mashups as I'm calling them, where people were adding things to it, I got a kick out of them, and I I've, I'm saving them all. I've got a folder now filled. Uh, literally, I'm in the hundreds. People put ice cream on there and bicycle, and like how could I forget bike? I'm a huge cyclist, and drugs and alcohol and all that kind of stuff. Bra was really popular, so a lot of you know women. I have like 20 different versions of people that put a bra on, and they're all actually different. I I kind of like those. Yeah, it's great if someone credits you back. I also understand, though, when something goes this viral and I've seen it happen in the background, that very often people are just getting this emailed to them in an email and they're laughing and then they're forwarding it on. I mean, I'm not expecting someone to look at it and say, oh, it says accidental fire on there. I'm going to take the time to go and find that blog post and make sure this guy gets his. Credit. I get that. You're just going to forward it on. It's how the world works, right? So once it's kind of out of the bag like that, I understand that it's going to be tough for me to get people crediting me back. It does anger me when some people wiped my blog name off of it on purpose, and those those have been going around. Um, It's not fun either when you see someone say, Hey, I came up with this particular graph, and it's like, No, you didn't. But whatever. You know, I'm not going to get too upset about it. My main thing is that i made people laugh and the only reason i do satire on my blog is i want people to laugh no one's going to try to be funny a stand up comedian or anyone else there's no point in trying to be funny if you don't get satisfaction out of making people laugh and make people smile so the fact that people are laughing and smiling all over the world at this thing is just tickles me pink it like totally stokes me that i'm making i can make you know people laugh so that's that's the ultimate I wanted to put a shout out real quickly for your graphic arts work. You can find
1: Dave at accidentalfire.com. He was instrumental and created the graphics for both What's Up Next and Earn and Invest. And he is my go-to guy whenever I need visual suggestions on how to make something work. Let's talk about the blog a little bit. How do you think this graphic going viral affected the
0: trajectory of your blog or has it? The trajectory is for when I'm taking the blog, I don't think it's going to change what I'm going to do with the blog. It's increased my audience massively. <laughs> I'm still like my page views are off the charts for me what I have normally. And this has been going on for about two weeks now. So I'm not assuming that's going to stay. But I'm hoping it's going to be at least elevated from where I was before. I want a bigger audience like everybody else, right? So yeah, it's changed the status of my blog as far as audience. I've got tons of new email signups. In addition to that, I've got tons of new followers on all the socials, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So that's all great. I have a bigger audience. Will it change what I'm going to do? Probably not. I was kind of thinking about yesterday, I have a lot of new email signups, a lot. And I'm thinking, I wonder if some of those people came to this particular post because they were sent there, loved it, signed up for my email list thinking that I'm a meme guy. <laughs> and when they get my next email, it's going to be a financial article maybe, they're going to be like, what did I sign up for this? When did I do this? I mean, I'm, so I hope they don't think that I'm like a meme generator because that's not how I'm changing the blog. I'm not going to be sitting here thinking, how can I design the next meme that's going to go viral? I would love to be able to do that if I know the formula because it's been a lot of fun. But I'm not turning it into a meme blog, and it's been meme websites has been one of the largest places it's been. And you don't realize how many of them there are until you start getting all these pingbacks and feedbacks, and then there's thousands of them under everywhere. And I'm on like virtually all of them. <laughs> Let's broaden the conversation out a little
1: bit, moving away from the topic of going viral in this graphic itself. Let's talk about personal finance in April of 2020. How do you think our community has changed? What do you think the long-term effects of this pandemic and accompanying recession are going to be? Ooh,
0: man, how's the community changed? First part of that question. I'm actually a little surprised by the reaction. I thought like a lot of people being that I'm already financially independent and have been so for you know a good four or five years now, I thought that a lot of the newbies to FI or people working towards FI were going to bail out because it would be so much of a shock to the system. And I actually think from what I've seen so far, people are handling it pretty well as far as the financial part, obviously. I'm sure there's some you know, variance there. I mean, everybody's got I guess their guesses is what's going to happen. I'm no Nostradamus, but you know, even though the stock market's been coming back and fighting, and, and um, I think the long-term implications to the economy obviously are are not going to be seen for long-term by definition. We're going to see what's going to happen, but I don't think it's good, obviously. I mean, it's, I think we're going to be dealing with this for a couple of years, probably. The number of businesses that are shut down and the number of people that are falling for unemployment, the trillions of dollars the government's pumping into the economy, is that going to cause inflation? There's a lot of Open any question marks here? And are people going to go back to restaurants? Are people going to? Are our dentists going to be able to reopen? Are all these things that are that are really changing? So you know, my guess is as good as anyone's. I think uh, obviously it's not good, but at the same time, folks like us they can try to carve a niche out online, I think it gives us an extra advantage. And then you've got implications to long-term schooling. Are we going to have more schooling at home, the education system and everything? That's a broad question. Obviously, you can have a number of podcasts on it and you're probably going to do so in the future. But I think the community is holding up well from what I've seen. Obviously, we should. What kind of quirked me a little bit was like a lot of people, is this the end of the fire movement? And I put a blog post out on that. I was like, are you kidding me? I mean, if anything, we're more relevant than ever. And we are among anyone have been preparing for things like this by having money stashed aside and emergency funds and everything. So we should be holding up way better than everybody else. And I think that's been proven true from what I've actually seen. Yeah, we're going to be talking about this this time next year. I can guarantee it. (laughs) So as you say, this is a long-term issue that we're going to deal with. And
1: we are all feeling fairly somber about what's happening how do you take the criticism that people look at Turn Up Fire or your infographics and say,
0: hey, this is really not a time for comedy? I personally haven't gotten that criticism and I'm happy about that. I was a little worried when I put that infographic out because the day before it went out, I saw an incident on Twitter and I try to stay off the socials as much as possible because I think, well, I don't think, I know that their business models encourage people to get in fights and they stoke conflict and that's what they're all about because it keeps you hooked on there and sells more ads. So I saw an incident on Twitter the day before it went out where someone in our community, I won't name any names, and tried to be funny about something. And it was edgy. It was definitely a little edgy humor, something I probably wouldn't have put out, but I don't think it was that over the top. And he got subtweeted for it and berated for it. And everyone piled on and called him all kinds of names and stuff like that. And It was ugly. And I was, again, I was like, you know, note number one, use Twitter to promote um, and don't don't look at the rest of the stuff because it's just, you know, usually bad. And two, let's be careful about humor when you're putting out humor in this, which is why I said I thought particularly about this and said, okay, I want to be funny and you're allowed to be funny. Jimmy Fallon's still having his particular show. And last night he had nurses and doctors on actually dancing on that concert that they had while they're in their masks and everything. And some people could take offense to that. They're literally in a hospital where people are actually dying and they're actually dancing. You're always going to offend somebody. That's one. We all know that. There's always people who are looking to take offense to things. And those people, I don't really have a lot of time for. But two, I did purposely want to be careful and said, okay, this really 90% of people are not going to see this as offensive. And I haven't gotten any pushback on it. I'm really happy about that. Now, will I keep doing humor? This year? Yeah. And am I maybe going to go over the line compared to other people or what someone out there thinks? Probably. And that's okay then. Fine. You know, I mean, we can't not have humor. Life goes on. And smiling and laughing, um, you're a doctor. You could probably tell me more about this than I, but it releases endorphins. It reduces stress. It restores things to normalcy, right? It puts people at ease. And we can't not have that. You just have to be a little bit cognizant about how you go about doing it, right? In this time where
1: we have a viral pandemic, which has no cure, I feel like laughter is probably right now the best medicine. So I thank you for putting out that infographic. It was titled Relative Importance in 2020 So Far. It was published April 3rd, 2020 on Accidentalfire.com. An amazing blog. up Fire is hilarious. And there's some great infographics. Dave, thanks for being on
0: the show. Doc. I really appreciate what you do. Keep on doing what you do and uh, we'll get through this together, man. Definitely stay safe. Yep. You too. Yay.
2: You're so kind. Awesome. Thank you. No, That's that was what a- I'm trying to tell people like, guys, this is why you got into this.
1: <laughs> no. And this is my goal was to bring out you. Right. So, I, you know, I I never know because I don't know you personally that well, but I try to find what I think is special and amazing about you and bring it to this interview. And certainly I think you you talked about just some really interesting, important things. I hope you feel like your message got out in that. But I certainly feel like you said a lot of great, great things.
2: Yeah, I think it's just a lot of things people need to hear. There's just a lot of chaos and crisis. And I'm like, you getting wrapped up in that is not going to help anybody solve this problem like it's just not so let's revert let's redirect this focus and this attention like there are many things that are out of your control right now (laughs) nothing you can do about it
1: yeah and for me you know looking at your information what i've found succinctly which describes you is that kind of relentlessness um not in a bad way like but in a way that you will not let something stand in your way. I just, I don't get that. And I think that's what you preach to your clients is, you know, you've got to want it and you've got to go after it and believe in it. But I think you're a great example of how important that is. And I think when I see your videos about how your clients all of a sudden go from having no business to tons of business, it's because you've given some of that to them. You've given them skills and knowledge and you've taught them how to do things. But what you're really doing is teaching them how to be relentless. Yeah. And, I and think
2: conviction.
1: Yeah. He who and I has think most conviction wins.